Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Redeemed Referees by Pastor Sean Wood. And uh, you'd like to meet me this morning in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue to work our way through our Reaching Out series. And uh, this morning, uh, last three previous three weeks, we've been looking at conversion and we've been looking at God's work of salvation and we've been looking at what that looks like. There's a part that God plays and regeneration is absolutely the work of God, but there's also a part that we play. We saw that throughout those stories as well. And today, I want to answer the question, what is the church's role in saving the world? That's what Jesus came to do, right? Jesus came to save the world. Jesus came with a gospel message and power to save the world. What's our part in that? And what is the calling of the church today? Before we go any further, when it comes to reaching out and evangelism, God bless every street preacher, but we don't need more street preachers. We don't need more programs. We don't need any more flashy buildings, we don't need to fill stadiums, we don't need to get some guru preacher from overseas. But there is something that's missing from the body of Christ. And today I hope that the Lord unpacks that and lays it on our hearts. Remember when I played football? Sorry, the Greek for football is AFL. It's where you kick the ball um, and you, you you don't throw it. Uh, the AFL has many teams like uh, the West Coast Eagles. Everybody said, woo! But, uh, uh, and they have teams like Collingwood. And here's how to know if you're a Collingwood supporter. You don't want to know. No, everybody loves Collingwood uh, or they hate them, one of the two. Uh, but uh, in AFL football, every weekend, uh, and I notice the same thing, that uh, there's two teams on the field, right? Uh, One team's trying to run the ball that end and kick the goal. The other team's trying to run the ball that end and uh, kick the goal. And and on any given game day, there's a crowd. If it's a West Coast Eagles game, it's a really big crowd. If it's a Collingwood game, it's a very special crowd. Uh, But at the end of the day, uh, there's also another presence. The referees. Uh, Something about the referees is... They have a completely different agenda to everybody else on game day. They're not trying to score goals. They're not trying to win games. They're not trying to win Brownlow medals. They're not there for the accolades. In fact, it turns out that most of the crowd don't even like them. Well, it depends, right? If your team's being penalised, you don't like them. If your team gets the free kick, you love them. But they have a very special job. In fact, imagine for a moment any football game without referees. Imagine the chaos. But on any given game day, the referee, he actually is only a representative of a very higher authority. You see, there's a higher authority. When I played football, it was the Northern Tasmanian Football Association. They don't have a team either. They're not trying to kick goals either. They're not trying to win Brownlow medals either. They're not after premierships. They're there to offer a presence to call the shots on game day. Every referee on any game day, they operate by a higher authority. And they are there to make calls throughout the course of play according to the book. God has referees. 
every one of us are God's referees. Called to live by the book. Called by a higher authority to be a presence amongst the chaos. One game day I played, we had a guy on our team by the name of Crazy Dave. He wore that name for a very good reason. Crazy Dave had a line and when he crossed that line, you couldn't bring him back. And on this particular day, he had decided that public enemy number one was the two men dressed in white. That ended with two umpires in the dugout with the door locked on the inside, ringing the police. What happened on the field was chaos. Interestingly enough, that when you take those referees off the field, those guys ran, (laughs) nobody took them off the field, they took themselves, but those guys ran into the dugout, locked the door, crazies banging on the door, (laughs) trying to get in, and... In a heartbeat, everybody else on the field forgot we were playing football. Nobody was trying to kick goals anymore. Nobody cared about running the ball anywhere. Nobody was playing. Nobody was doing anything. What was happening on the field was chaos. No winners that day. A couple of things never happened after that day. Crazy Dave didn't play football for the rest of the season. Those two referees never came back. You don't do that. Every one of us players knew something. We didn't like the referees. But we knew that if we crossed the line, that they were representatives of a higher authority and that we were in trouble. Today, when we land the plane in Matthew 16 of where we want to go, I pray that each one of us know that we are God's referees, that he has put on this field to stand on the book and enforce the gospel. That's the calling of the church. It's time for the church to get out of the dugout. It's time to unlock the door and get back on the field. And it's time for the world to see the referees. Let's see how Jesus put it in probably one of the most pivotal chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, and one of the most pivotal moments in the ministry of Christ, and two of the greatest questions in the universe. Every person has to answer these questions. Let's walk our way through them. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, why is that even important? Who cares, right? What are these guys telling us? Well, Caesarea Philippi, it, it matters very much so for what comes forward. Because on uh, Caesarea Philippi was the furthest most point of Jewish influence. It was completely controlled by Gentiles. It was very, very secular. All of the world's gods were on display. Any god goes at Caesarea Philippi. If you worship, good for you. Bring it along, set up an altar. But it's not just Caesarea Philippi. It's the most prominent place in that district where Jesus could be, on a place called Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon... And the Mount of Transfiguration, which is where Jesus is transfigured before three of his disciples, is a sermon for another day. But let me describe Mount Hermon for you. If you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll read times when we had good kings like Josiah and even Hezekiah for all of his misgivings towards the end. Hezekiah was a good king. And and if you come back tonight, you'll hear this word a little bit more. They brought in sweeping reforms into Israel. 
And what they would do first is they would tear down all the altars and they would tear down something they call the high places. And scattered up and down Mount Hermon were a number of these high places, altars, shrines, built to the dedication of a lot of gods, but one of them in particular was a god called Pan, which looked like a goat. And they would sacrifice children on these altars. Mount Hermon and the surrounding district was known for its evil influence. And it's no accident that Jesus was transfigured on that mountain. And it's no accident that he's going to ask these two questions against the backdrop of Caesarea Philippi. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years. We live kind of in Caesarea Philippi now, where any God goes, right? You worship whatever. Whatever's good for you, you do you. When did that happen? In fact, what was the case at Caesarea Philippi is actually the case today, and it was also the case many years before. Ever read the book of Judges where everybody did what was right in their own eyes? And how did that work out? Not so great. We live in that society today where everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And amidst that context and against that backdrop of every God that's on display, Jesus is going to ask two very important questions. Let's unpack them. First one, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now, these questions, uh, whenever God is asking a question, he's not looking for information. We have to clarify this. It's not like uh, when, when God said to Adam, where are you? It's not like, where did I put that guy? He knew exactly where Adam was, but he wanted Adam to know where Adam was. Why are you hiding, Adam? What's, got, what's changed? But now that he wants to ask these two questions, Jesus isn't looking for a popularity contest, and he's not trying to get some social media followers. He says, who do people say that I am? I love the answers. Have a listen to some of the answers. Well, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. He's dead. Some say you're Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And what I find astounding about those answers is for any one of them to be true means that something enormously supernatural has happened. So every single person that's answering that question, who does everybody say that Jesus is? Well, there's something supernatural about that guy. Something's different about that guy. Uh, I'm going to touch on it now, but I'm going to reinforce it later, what might be missing from the body of Christ. Remember Jesus when he comes on the scene... Uh, he enters the synagogue and he reads from the prophet Isaiah. It's not like they'd never read from the prophet Isaiah, right? It's not like they hadn't heard the teachings from the Old Testament before, right? No, no, no. Except now they stood up and said, there's something different about this guy. He speaks with authority. Ah. The temple guards in John chapter 7 uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And when they come back empty-handed, they say, why didn't you arrest him? And they say, you don't seem to understand. Nobody ever spoke like this guy. There was something different about Jesus. Everybody obviously recognises there's something different. But what do they say today? If we, if we took a poll today, if you, if you walked up and down the streets and said, who is Jesus? You'd probably get, well, yeah, some funny answers. But here's where they probably fall into in a broad category. Uh, some would say that he's a myth, never even lived. Others would say, well, he's just a man. 
And then there's people like myself and many people in this room today that say, he's the Messiah. We'll get to that question in a moment and we'll get to that answer in a moment. But just for a moment, you don't get to put Jesus on the shelf. That's why I love this question. Wherever you are today, you might have been following Christ for 20 years. You may never have known Jesus. You don't get to put Jesus on the shelf. And if you're a Christian today, you don't get to put Jesus on the shelf and just take him off when you've got something bad going on in your life, right? It's not like, oh, no, the crap's hit the fan. I'll get Jesus down off the shelf. You dress my life up, make everything nice and pretty, and then when I'm done, I'll put you back. It doesn't work like that. You don't get a middle ground with Jesus. None of the Gospels leave a middle ground. You don't get to play games with Jesus. You don't get to put him in the back room. And open it when you're ready. You don't get to do that. But you also don't get to ignore him. Because 95% of scholars, whether they are atheists, critics or what, agree to a set of minimal facts that don't allow you to put Jesus on the shelf. Minimal facts like that it is a historical fact, a categoric home run that Jesus of Nazareth was born around 2 BC that he was baptised by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, that he died a horrible, gruesome death at the hands of Pontius Pilate. But here's the big one, friends. Put your seatbelt on for this one. The tomb is empty. And there are historians today that hate Jesus, but say, you know what? We can't find the body. Jesus said that an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and none shall be given in it bar one. And what's that? As Jonah was in the belly of the whale... What's the sign? The resurrection. Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, two prominent names that said, we're going to disprove Christianity. And the moment they got to the resurrection, they got converted because they couldn't find the body either. If you want to do away with Christianity, easy. Find me the body of Jesus. You put a body in that tomb, you do away with Christianity. I'll see you when you want to pray for salvation. Praise God. Who do the people say that I am? You don't get to leave Jesus as just a man, right? Men don't rise from the dead. C.S. Lewis said that I am the reluctant convert. The evidence compels me, which is interesting. C.S. Lewis would say, God closed me in. They're really profound words. He says, I know that I chose God. He says, but I also know that at exactly the same time, I had no other option. (laughs) Jesus has a way of doing that to people, by the way. Who do the people say I am? He's more than a man. He cannot be just a myth. But here's the most important question. Verse 15, he said to them, to his disciples, okay, let's forget what everybody else says for a moment because that's actually not the most important thing here today. The most important thing is against this backdrop, and in one of the most evil places in the region, who do you say that I am? Against a secular society that says all there is to life is cramming it full of pleasure. We live in a society that is today that says we're here for a good time, not a long time, and they may, be, they may be right about the last part. Who do you say that I am? Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You don't put the Son of God back on the shelf. You don't get to have a half-hearted response to the Son of God. 
like him or loathe him today. Every person on the planet has to do something with Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered Simon, Peter, what did he say? I love this part. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This part's really important. Because what Jesus is saying is, you didn't come to this knowledge of who I am because you went to school. You didn't come to this knowledge of who I am because of who your rabbi is or who your pastor is or who's running the synagogue or the guy down the street or because of a good book you read. No, you came to this because God opened your eyes. For those that might know, every now and again I dabble in a little bit of fly fishing. Every now and again, once or twice a year at least, I go fly fishing. But one of, the, one of the greatest tools in my arsenal is not the rod and it's not the line and it's not even the fly at the end of the line. Uh, for anybody who's been fishing or knows fishing, uh, one of the most important tools I have in my arsenal is what I call a set of divine Polaroids. You see, if you don't have polarised sunglasses, go and look at the water. You can't see anything underneath the surface. All you can see is glare and all you can see is reflection and, and somebody might come up to you and describe it for you, mightn't they? They might say there's a whole other world beneath that surface. There's a whole world where there's fish, you know, a fish that, well, my fish are like that big, across the eyes. I'm a pastor, you have to believe everything I tell you. <laughs> Said nobody. <laughs> I'm not going to go outside until the lightning's finished. But... <laughs> Good plan. Yeah, thank you, Liz. Yeah, yeah. Cat lovers and myself will stay inside today. But uh, what it does is when you put the Polaroids on, uh, all of a sudden you can see clearly into the water and for a long distance too. The lakes in Tasmania, I could stand up in rocks on lakes in Tasmania and almost see the other side of the lake. There are guys that fish flats off the top of a boat in some of the remote Pacific islands, they can see bonefish, which bonefish are the colour of that wall. They, they blend into the sand and the water in the background, but they can see them a mile off with a pair of Polaroids on. And you can see into another world. Now, did somebody just all of a sudden create that world when you put the glasses on? No, 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 no. It was always there, but all of a sudden you were able to see. You see, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, I've always been the son of God. I didn't all, all of a sudden become God's son. Uh, to everybody else, I'm the carpenter's son, right? Luke chapter 4. Why couldn't Jesus do any miracles in his hometown? Because he's just the carpenter's son. They couldn't see who he was. But Peter, you can see who I am. Well, God has divine Polaroids today. You and me. God's call upon our lives, a little bit more about that next week, but God's call on our life is that people can look into your life and see a whole other world and see the reality of the person that is the king of that world. Yeah. You can't get those glasses from universities. You can't get those glasses from anyone else. You must have those glasses put on you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you see, oh, when you see, was it C.S. Lewis that says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun? Not because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything. 
Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, because you can see. The word reveal means to pull back the covers. It means to unveil the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, because that's what that word there, revealed, means. It's apocalypse. It doesn't mean that the world's about to end. It simply means that what was there the whole time, the covers have been pulled back. And the truth about how big my fish really are is unveiled. We can't get them in the door, sorry. Verse 19, here we go now. We're going to, this is the first time we're going to see Jesus uses the word church. You see, church, today, sometimes I think we've lost the definition. And maybe we've lost the purpose and maybe we've lost the meaning. But here's what Jesus intended his church to be. And it's all wrapped up in the fact that Peter can see Now, verse 19, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, what rock? On the rock of the revelation of who Jesus is. I'm sorry for all the Catholics in the room that just got a little bit disappointed. It's not the Pope, and we're not blowing smoke out of chimney today. It is the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And what does Jesus say? Upon the revelation of who I am... I will build my church. I love that. I've got the easiest job in the world. Why? Because he's doing all the work. Don't tell the board. It's a secret. It's not a a challenge. But sometimes I wonder whether we try to do God's work when God's saying, hey, listen, just get out of my way for a minute. I will build my church. What's the call upon the church of Jesus Christ? To be a revelation of Jesus. Everything we do here, our heartbeat as a leadership, everything we do here is to open the book that scales may fall from all of our eyes. I've still got scales in my eyes. I still need the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. Every time I open... Do you know, anybody else ever realise you can read the same passage of Scripture over and over and over and over and you get something else out of it every time. When I was at school, that never happened with my mass books. <laughs> Despite the best efforts of my teachers, Robin, you'd be pleased to know. I'm so, praise God, you're a wonderful teacher, but I'd be apologising if you were my teacher. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm glad. About, and I tell you this, you are Peter and I will build my church. And the word my there is enormous. The Rock Christian Church is not my church. And if I'm not here, Jesus will keep on building this church. He doesn't need me. He can, he can raise a pastor up from the stones. That's not a challenge to the board either. <laughs> but the reality is this is his church and you are his people. I don't own you. Nobody owns you. You're free to come and go. Our heart is that for anybody that comes through those doors on any given week, that we would bless you, that you would grow while you are here, that you would grow closer to Jesus, that affections for Christ would grow. And if that happens, we've done our job. God bless you wherever you may find yourself after that. Praise God. It's his church. I will build my church on the rock of the revelation of who I am. The reality of who I am. Not a watered down version. Not a a version that's palatable for everybody out there. Now we come to the crux of where I wanted to to land the plane this morning. Remember we're on Mount Hermon, right? Well, it was a real special place on Mount Hermon. I think about halfway up from what most people would say. There was a cave halfway up Mount Hermon. 
And uh, right about where Jesus would have been having this conversation with his disciples, not very far from there, there was a cave. And the entrance to that cave was called the Gates of Hades. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Excuse me, I will build my church and the gates of hell, but the Bible should say Hades, and I'm going to clarify why in a moment. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. You need to take that word against out, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Uh, In Scripture, we see two words that sometimes we think are the same, but they're actually not. The word hell and Hades are not the same. Hell is a place, it is a real place. It is a place that is prepared and it is a place that is reserved, which means no one's there yet, according to Scripture. So just hold on to that thought for a moment. What the Scripture also teaches is there's a place called Hades or Sheol or the place of the dead. Something interesting about Hades, it's never specified for believers or non-believers at all. It doesn't say that's where all the non-believers, it doesn't say that's where all the believers go. It just says it is where you go once you die. That's, that's what it says. So the gates of Hades is a representation of all the powers of sin and death. And why I love that verse is, we have often misinterpreted that verse. We've often thought that, you know what, uh, what that means is that I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we as the people of God, we've just got to hang on for grim life and, and maybe we'll survive all the attacks of the enemy. No, 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 no. That's not what that verse means. In fact, Michael Heiser, uh, he configures the verse the most prominent. I think this, I think the way he translates this verse is the best. You've got to take the word against out and he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not withstand it. What's the difference? The difference is this is not defensive language, it's offensive language. What Jesus is saying is we're not the ones that are supposed to be fearful, trepidatious about what the enemy's going to do. He should be worried about what you're going to do. The gates of anywhere was a fortified position and the gates was the last thing that held the enemy at bay. And what's Jesus saying? The gates of sin and death and all the power of the enemy aren't going to stop you guys because you've got what? The authority from above. You are God's referees. You are God's representatives. And how do I know that he's given us his authority? Because of the very next verse. I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. Why? Because I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Different to when you give your kids the keys to the car, friends. What do keys represent? Access. Authority. Jesus is saying, they gave a football player the keys to the Brisbane City. It's true. Uh, Barney or... Lee Matthews, the only AFL footballer that ran into the behind post and broke it, (laughs) Uh, interestingly enough. But he's also known as the coach that led the Brisbane Lions to three back-to-back premierships. And after the third one, they gave him the keys to the city. I don't know what that means, because I'm not even sure he lives here anymore. But what it does mean in Scripture is this. God is giving you all of the access and all the authority. And the next verses are really important, because they are often misinterpreted. 
Let's go straight there and unpack what Jesus means and what it means for us. I will build my church. We'll go back. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are those keys? Those keys are, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Here's how that verse should read. Whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. You've got to hang on to that verse for a moment. Uh, what shall already have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And we've mistaken that verse. We've mistaken it as, well, the we need to fill our prayer meetings with binding the spirit of this and loosing the spirit of that. That's not what it means. It's something far more glorious, far more profound. Uh, binding and loosing language, because it also comes up in Matthew 18, but binding and loosing language in the first century was something that the rabbis would apply, the scribes, the Pharisees and the rabbis. Uh, let me uh, unpack what binding and loosing looked like. Uh, binding and loosing was a reference to the law. You were either bound to the law or you were loosed according to the law. Let me explain. Uh, the only example I could find that we might all understand is that if a, if a dog in the first century died in your house, Is your house clean or unclean? It is unclean and you are bound by the law to ceremoniously clean your house. Okay, so if a dog dies outside my house, is my house clean or unclean? Your house is clean, you are loosed from the obligations of the law. That's the application. That's the power and the authority given. Here's a a funny one. If the dog dies on my doorstep, is my house clean? Or unclean. And they would say, if the face of the dog is pointing towards your house, your house is unclean, you are bound. Who's glad Jesus came? (laughs) But if the face of the dog is pointing away from your house, you are loosed, bound, loosed, bound, loosed. What is the rabbi or the scribe doing? The rabbi and the scribe are acting in what has already been sanctioned and delegated in heaven. And so what God is saying, what what Jesus is saying here is, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. So so whatever will have already been, what's Jesus saying? You are to take the gospel in all the authority that I have. You are to enforce the gospel. You are to enforce the gospel in your workplace, in your schools, when you're at the supermarket. Because you have his authority and what has been... This isn't us setting policy in heaven. This is us enforcing heaven's policies on earth. Let me tell you about a man. I like this guy. Probably because he's Scottish. Anybody ever been to St Andrews? Or the ruins of St Andrews? It It should be. I was listening to a man that had been to the ruins of St Andrews. But St Andrews has lost some of its flavour. You see, uh, I want to talk to you today about a man by the name of John Knox. But I'm going to put him over there for a moment. The man that went to visit St Andrews, and St Andrews and John Knox have a real rich history. He says, I went to visit the ruins and not more than a block away from the ruins of St Andrews, he says, was a man that was street preaching the gospel. He said, you know what? I stopped and listened. He said, the guy was full of all the fervour and zeal. He says he was saying the right things. His doctrine was great. His his theology was great. He was using scripture. He was enthusiastic. He says, but everybody was walking past him and paying no more attention to him than they were the parking meters on the street. But what struck him was, back 
in John Knox's day, who was the great Scottish reformer, hated, hated in some circles. So well liked was he that the Bishop of St Andrews says that if John Knox dares walk through that door, he'll be met with a six-gun salute. He said, and every one of them pointed right at the bridge of his nose. And here's why I like John Knox. What do you think John Knox did when he heard that? I'm going to St Andrews. (laughs) The very next Sunday, John Knox walked into St Andrews. I guarantee you, the minute he walked through that door, I guarantee you, nobody was on their phone. Nobody was snoozing. Everybody got the kids out of creche and Sunday school. Come and watch what's going to happen here. Everybody was waiting for the guys with the guns, right? And at a break in the service, he ascended the pulpit. In those days, you had to climb up the pulpit. It was like, praise God for that. Otherwise, you could lose a few pounds on the way up. Nobody stopped him. John Knox ascended into the nook and he preached up there for ages. Nobody pointed a gun. Nobody got him out of there. Everybody was dumbfounded. Why? Because he spoke with authority. And he casually walked down the stairs and out the door of St Andrews. God bless the Scots. <laughs> they don't muck around, do they? But I have a question. Where are the John Knoxes today? Where are the men and women of God that are preaching with authority? That are enforcing the gospel with authority? You know what? Like, love, or loathe John Knox, everybody in St Andrew's Cathedral that day had to do something about him. Whether you hated his message or not, you heard it and you had to regurgitate it or you had to swallow it or do something with it. You couldn't run away from it because he was a man that left you something deposited on the inside. John Knox was like John the Baptist, just walked onto the scene and said, I've got a message from God and I don't care whether you like it or not. I'm going to tell you. We have, what is the call of God upon the church today? We are called to step into and walk in the authority that he has given us to enforce the policies of the gospel of heaven here on earth. I am not ashamed of the gospel, said Paul the Apostle. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. The number one thing that they treasured in the first church and they protected and they fought for was the integrity of the gospel. And we need that back today. The integrity of the message of the gospel. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. Men, you will be pleased to know today. I wasn't real good at maths, but I'm going to give you a maths equation today that's one of the greatest ones in the universe. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We have his authority. He's given us the keys to the kingdom. It's time for every one of us to get out of the dog out, walk out onto the field, and be God's referees on the field. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Here's my prayer for Brisbane. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, I pray that every eye shall see the reality and the truth of Jesus. 
Here's my next prayer. I pray for every believer, every church. I don't care about the denomination, Father. I pray today that, Lord, we would be the Polaroids in this world, that we would live the truth of the gospel, that we would live the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you would unveil the reality of Christ through our lives, I pray. Lord, we pray one prayer for this city. Lord, rend the heavens and come on down. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.